Hi, everyone. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that in today's show, we talk about Judaism and its relationship to Mormonism. We enjoyed our discussion, but because we ourselves are not Jewish, we asked some Jewish friends to give the episode a sensitivity listen before we published it. They gave us two corrections that I thought I'd put up front. First, at one point, I referred to Jewish culture, but they recommended that we be careful here because, quote, for Jews, religion and culture are very different. Since Jews are in diaspora, we encompass a million cultures, but we only have one religion. Secondly, at one point, I referred to Old Testament characters involved in the restoration of the priesthood to the LDS prophet Joseph Smith, but I should have said they were from the New Testament, namely John the Baptist and the apostles Peter, James, and John. I meant to refer to Elijah the prophet, who appeared to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in the Kirkland Temple and restored the sealing power we use in temples to seal families together for time and eternity. Thanks, and on with the show. Hi, Eric. Hi, Aaron. Um, so we decided a few years ago <laughs> that when we put this show together, that um, our goal was to have conversations. Yes. Right? And that we wouldn't be like um, a scripted podcast or something like that, but it would be kind of just more informal, right? I had stuff I want to talk about, right? You yes. Had stuff you wanted to talk about, right? And we were going to do some research and, but importantly, the idea was, is that you and I are not professional Mormons for lack of a better term. Sure. Right. It's a fun way to put it. Yes. <laughs> right. The church history department is not paying us to do any research. No. Right. We're not making trips to libraries to pull old documents. No. Right? Publishing journal articles. When I see tweets that have old um, Working books. towards tenure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I see tweets that have old books and like you're supposed to be able to read the handwriting, I can never read the handwriting. No, that's rough. <laughs> so, that is rough. All right. So we thought we would do all of our like missteps and our research, right? Just out in public. Sure. Just record it put it on the internet, right? Right. Because the stuff that we're trying to figure out, that we're trying to work through the hard stuff of Mormonism, right? Uh, was interesting. And I, I kind of just felt that at least the people that I know personally, I don't know, they might be interested in it too. Right. Yeah. I mean, and if not, it's well, a free country. It's a free country. And something else. <laughs> <laughs> There's some very good Magic the Gathering podcasts out there. You just have to find them. <laughs> so why am I putting a big caveat on this? Is because we're going to be talking today about Mormonism and Judaism. Did I pronounce it right? See, I'm, I'm not Jew. I'm just so nervous that I'm not, I don't even know how to pronounce Overthinking it everything. Yeah. And neither of us are, of course, um, Jewish. and but I just saw some stuff out there that made me really start thinking hard about our relationship to um, the Jewish culture, to Jewish faith. And I thought it was really interesting, right? So, we, so we're not experts, but we've done some reading and let's talk about it, right? Yeah. Why am I so nervous? I'm not nervous. <laughs> I wanted to start 
with a quote here from a from a board game uh, YouTube channel. Okay. Okay. Um, this is by the channel. Um, uh, no pun included. Right. They review board games, and in this video, they had a discussion on um, colonialism. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, for example, if I walk over there to my board game shelf, I can pull out many board games that have um, colonialist themes. Yeah. All right. It, whether on purpose or not. It's fun to gamify oppression, Aaron. Right. Because it's just dudes on a map, right? Yeah. You just, you're just having fun That's rolling dice. Right. Let's play some risk. Mm-hmm. Right. We don't play <laughs> risk here. <laughs> I'd be surprised if you did. Right. Okay. So I'm just going to play this quote here. Um, this is at the end of a very excellent video, so I recommend it and we'll have it in the show notes. The other thing publishers can do to understand the topics they are dealing with is hire sensitivity readers, people who have expertise in the subject matter and help you untangle the messy side of culture and history. A practice some publishers started employing is hiring writers. Great, but make sure that your writers are actually knowledgeable about the subject they are dealing with. And this is the crux of the matter and my ultimate verdict to anyone who publishes a game with exploitation. You have no business touching something if A, you don't understand it, or B, you have nothing to add to the conversation. Okay, so I heard this, right? And this comment that he has of if you're going to be a writer, and in this case, he's referring to board games, which feature colonialism, right? But if if you're going to be a writer, right, and you and you and you need to either understand the subject really well, right, or have something meaningful to add to the conversation, right? Yeah. Okay. If I judged my ability to talk about Judaism and Mormonism by that standard, right? I think I would fall very short myself. Well, I don't know what you have to say yet. So I I will hold back on judging you, Aaron. (laughs) But if I, but if I didn't talk about this kind of stuff, right? I'm, I mean, I don't know who, I don't know who is. I I don't even know if it's important. I just thought it'd be fun to talk about. But I just heard this and I was like, wait, do I, what right do we have to talk about other people's cultures? Well, so this is something that novelists get into arguments about all the time. Okay. Because on the one hand, should you, the novelist, write about something you don't know? But if the answer is no, you should not, then what can you write about? just autobiographical novel after autobiographical novel, like um, just really pure solipsistic nonsense. That's um, that's a failure of fiction. Like fiction's job is to help us understand things we don't understand. And fiction won't always succeed at that, but that's the fictionist's job is to explore what they don't know. Uh, I think this is actually why a lot of um, Latter-day Saint writers are so successful in fantasy and science fiction because they're avoiding this this topic, both talking about themselves and about other cultures, and they're just avoiding it altogether and jumping into fantasy and science fiction, which is not a knock on fantasy and science fiction. Um, Big fan, totally approve of it. But the fact that we are so successful in that and so bad at um, 
and by bad, I'm, I'm talking about the numbers of successful writers. There are so few of us um, succeeding in a large way at, at doing like contemporary fiction suggests that we're maybe this is what we're afraid of. Also, fantasy and science fiction is just the best kind of fiction. Yeah, I mean, better than Under the Banner of Heaven, which is what I kept thinking of as we listened to that quotation, which I'm very glad we're not talking about. <laughs> oh, no, we will be later. Oh, great. <laughs> Swell. <laughs> okay, well, okay, listen. So why did I want to talk about this? When we were recording our last episode, I used the phrase nationalist propaganda when referring to the Book of Joshua, right? Oh, yes. Right? Sure. And after, as I was editing the show, I realized... You know what? That might have been offensive. Could have been. Yeah. I'm sure I have no doubt that there are Jews in this world who would find that offensive. Yeah. yeah. Maybe even friends of mine. Right. And so I wanted to talk about for people who are neither Mormons nor nor Jews. <laughs> just here for the lulls. Who are just here for the lulls. Why Mormons love Judaic culture and Old Testament bible so much yeah and it is to the point where it's almost like if you didn't believe in the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints teaching so that they were inspired from heaven and they were given to joseph smith that it would look like fan fiction yeah i i've heard that expression that the uh, book of mormon is just bible fan fiction more than once yeah <laughs> yeah and and it, it, it's probably worth pointing out up top that this is pretty unidirectional. Like yeah. we're like the little brother who's always hanging around our big brother and the big brother just sort of ignores us and, and forgets that we're there. And we're just like trying to be like big brother. But that's kind of the relationship between Mormons and Jews. Mm -hmm. Like we see ourselves in Judaism so much and they don't think about us very much at all, <laughs> <laughs> which is fine. <laughs> They have they have a few thousand years head start on us. Um, I can't even I can't even communicate how much we love Judaic culture. We kind church. of believe we're Jews. Yeah. Like in a very literal sense, like we believe. I mean, there's a reason we call people who aren't members of the church Gentiles. It's because yeah. we think we're Jews. <laughs> we kind of do. I mean, not precisely. Pretty close. We do. So and that's the part. There's, there's, so there's different perspectives, right? Let's talk Mormon to Mormons about how much we love the Judaic culture. We love right? the Jews, yeah. And um, let's talk Mormons to non-Mormons, non-Jews, and try to explain why. Let's talk to Jews and say, I'm sorry if we screwed up our relationship <laughs> by yeah. treading on what could be sacred, gra sacred ground. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to be... So that's kind of the things that I wanted to cover. How does that line up with? It's also worth pointing out that this feels really self-evident to me and it has my whole life. And it's part of the reason I was so shocked to learn that J. Reuben Clark, a uh, former apostle, yeah. was a raving anti-Semite. Yeah. Because I just don't understand how a Mormon is an anti-Semite. And, yeah. and I feel like that's worth pointing out because... Um, it seems likely that as more and more people get arrested for fun fascist activities in today's America, that we're going to have some Latter-day Saints getting arrested. Rumor is some of those people who arrested in Coeur d'Alene were Latter-day Saints. And it's hard to be a fascist without like flirting with anti-Semitism. So um, this every Mormon wants to be a Jew. Every Mormons love Jews. Like this feels really obvious to me. Um, but it is a little fetishistic. 
in a way. Mm -hmm. And it does run the risk of um, turning a people and a culture into something that we turn into um, sort of a religious fan culture. <laughs> and so and so that runs the risk. It's, it's sort of like a model minority kind of racism, possibly, that we are at risk of slipping into. And um, not that I think fascists are treating Jews like a model minority. I don't know, I don't know what their deal is. But anyway, for, it's... For, for what it's worth, I 100% agree with that perspective. I have my whole life, my Sunday school, my primary lessons, we learned about old um, like temples, the, you know, the Temple of Solomon, the yeah. tabernacle, we learned about the bread and we learned about the menorah and we learned about all this stuff and we, and you know, the incense and we, and we loved it. Right. Yeah. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. That's right. And and so when I was doing my research for today's episode and I stumbled upon what you are describing here about Mormon anti-Semites, I was shocked. I had no idea they existed. Yeah, it doesn't could, seem right. It didn't seem like... Well, it doesn't seem right on a lot of levels. It didn't right? seem... It, it, of course, it's just plain wrong and immoral. Yeah. But also, it's like, don't you really understand... Do you just not understand our church? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know there's a long history of Christian anti-Semitism, but it feels like one of the things that restoration should have been about was, was, um, um, you know, overcoming that rift. Yeah. Yeah. But okay. yeah. Okay. So my first question was, does that kind of outline make sense? Yeah. And I, I, I think what I like about that outline and kind of the chaotic conversation we've already engaged in is that there's a lot to unpack here. And to the best of my knowledge, nobody's written the 450 page version of this yet. And yeah. there's, there's a lot there's a lot to unpack. Um, so we're not going to hit everything. And and people who are familiar with this topic, either just through having grown up a Latter-day Saint or having had, I don't know, whatever whatever the means is by which you have some connection to this topic, you're probably going to disagree with us quite a bit, um, just as much as you do agree with us. And, um, and, and you we're not be, pretending to cover everything here. You might be annoyed by some yeah. of the stuff we say. <laughs> yeah, probably. But we're but we're trying. That's my that's why I had such a big disclaimer at the start because uh, I just love this stuff and I want to, to and I just thought it'd be fun to talk about. So let's talk first about the the fan fiction aspect of the church, right? Yeah. Let's start first with patriarchal blessings, okay? Because they're one of my favorite things. So if you don't know, a patriarchal blessing is a blessing that you can opt to receive from your local stake patriarch. And so many terms that I'm throwing out there. Okay. <laughs> right. So first your stake is your local like um, di diocese, right? That's a good way to describe it. I guess, but I don't know who knows that words besides Catholics. It's yeah. weird to me that we always use that as comparison. Like, does yeah. everybody know the Catholic does Everybody know the diocese like, term? It's a group of con of congregations. We're yeah. in the Oakland stake. A low example. number of thousands of people. Yeah, that's right. The Oakland stake has, you know, a bunch of congregations in it. Fewer than a dozen. Yeah. Uh, they will have we ha i think we have one maybe do we have only one patriarch in our stake uh no we actually have three we have which three. is unusual okay. one is normal but we have an english language a spanish language and a chinese language patriarch the patriarch has some nominal duties right outside of giving patriarchal blessings but not really they're no like give a talk when you're invited i think that's it yeah but really you give patriarchal blessings yes um which is enough 
And uh, no, I will not be quoting from my patriarchal blessing today on this public podcast episode. Yeah. But when I was 14, I got my blessing and darned if it hasn't been a roadmap and guide for my whole life. I yeah. love my patriarchal blessing. Um, it talked about things that may happen in my future. It talked about, mm-hmm. you know, some guidance and things that I could I could watch out for. And um, it was very nice. And and it named me a member of the uh, it um, I was adopted into the tribe of um, Ephraim. We've talked about this before, haven't we? I don't think so. Oh, well, you're 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 into science. Uh Um, This is a total this is a total tangent. Okay, should not go here. Okay, but here's the like the three sentence version. Yeah. Um, If Aaron. Yeah, I mean. Think about how long ago Ephraim was. So long. So long ago. If there is anyone on this planet who is directly descended from Ephraim, yeah, mathematically, like we are all descended from Ephraim. <laughs> and that's true of anyone who was alive then. <laughs> so uh one the once I've there's there's a whole Wikipedia article on that. I can't believe we haven't talked about this because this is like one of my favorite little distracted things to talk about. But um essentially, like anybody who is alive more than like I don't know, 17, 1800 years ago, who has any living descendants, everyone on earth is descended from them. Um, we're all cousins in that sense, which makes an interesting twist on this idea that we have that in the church that you're either descended from a tribe of Israel or you're adopted into one because we're all part of every tribe if there's any surviving members of the tribe. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of more like you get you know, yeah, it's uh, anyway, that's first of all, let's, just, else. let's, let's just step back for a back second to the and note that there are there are 12 tribes of Israel. There are. But the vast majority of Latter-day Saints are Ephraim or Manasseh. Ephraim, Ephraim or Manasseh. And we claim that we're adopted into them. Right. Yes. And this is one of that's the generally what we say. This is one of the first causes of annoyance, I think, between um, Jewish people and Mormon that's interesting because I don't know that I'd ever heard this listed as something annoying until I was looking at some of the notes you took. Yeah, I think that's the first time I heard this thing as a as a topic of annoyance. Yeah, um, here's a quote from uh, the Wikipedia our Wikipedia page on. Um, I'm just going to quote the title of the page, which we're going to have in the show notes. It's a very long. It's called Judaism and Mormonism, right? It's excellent. It goes. First of all, it goes through all the differences between our faith and the and the Judaic faiths, and of course, there are many different branches of Judaism, right? Sure, but that's not so useful. What's interesting is, I mean, we know there's differences in our doctrine, right? But that's not so interesting. What's interesting is the the similarities in some ways. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so here's what this quote is. Um, uh, let's see, some Jewish groups like Jews for Judaism reject wholesale the claims of, of the LDS that the conversion to Mormonism reveals a familial collect connection between the convert and ethnic Jews. They base their position on Judaism's interpretation of Hebrew scriptures and advances, advances in biological science, saying, quote, no amount of genetic testing or DNA sampling will show the Jewish people and the Latter-day Saints to be of the same ancestry. Latter-day Saints are simply not of Israelite origins. For all their assertions and genealogical research, the Latter-day Saints are not descendants of Joseph and can never join Judah in fulfillment of a non-existent prophecy, right? So I read this and I thought, 
I feel like this is kind of missing our point, right? We make no claim as to any actual literal genealogy. Well, I just did. You did, but and I think it's a fun claim. But it's not. It's a. Uh, it, it's disingenuous to say that that I'm making the argument that they are claiming. Yeah. Yeah. We make. We we talk about adoption. Yeah. Right. Because we, I guess, want to be part of the Abrahamic covenant. Well, yeah, that's a big part of. Well, okay. Let me put it about. Two, put it two ways. If you again, if you don't believe in the restoration of the gospel that we that we purport yeah then it looks like a a fan fiction right that we just saw the abrahamic covenant we read about it right we learned about um the children of israel and we're like yeah we want to be part of that too right yeah we don't believe that that's the case we believe that it's literal (laughs) yeah that we have been adopted into the same family right uh we did do an early episode about the expansion of um like the way the way history moves from more and more people becoming part of us and not part of them and that also reflects the way latter-day saints kind of understand the abrahamic covenant that starts with family and moves to a nation and eventually is everyone this expansion of who's included we're very inclusive people see our universalist episode <laughs> that's right <laughs> um i'm just kind of letting this sit for a minute because i'm not really sure what to say i i didn't know that this was annoying to some people until i started reading about it to me it's always been awesome <laughs> yeah it doesn't seem to me like the sort of thing Maybe who who cares? Maybe who yeah, cares? we can worry about honestly. Let's, let's just enjoy each other's different perspectives on this. Maybe maybe that's the answer. I think one of the things that's happened, and I'm speculating a little bit here, but I I think this makes sense, is that as Mormons have gained more cultural cachet, um, our claims cease to be cute and become threatening. Mm-hmm. Not to say we have very much cultural cachet, cachet. We don't. Holy smokes. And this is what I wanted to comment on, right? Nobody seems to take us seriously at all. No. This under They're the, the same number of Jews in America as Mormons, more or less. Yeah. Uh, but we have nothing like their cultural cachet. Nothing. Nothing like it. We're not <laughs> threatening yet. <laughs> it's too soon to be annoyed by us because we are still merely cute. <laughs> this under the banner, banner of heaven stuff. Yeah is just the worst and this is the only thing i wanted to say about it right um i didn't watch it i have no intention of watching it i don't want to watch it right i don't want to watch my faith be misinterpreted yeah right towards violence there's one that just came out on netflix maybe because they wanted to compete with hulu and they're like oh we got to get a documentary out there too yeah called keep sweet or something like that Oh, Love, I've heard the title, but I don't Rain know what it's about. Bay or something uh-huh and you know and then of course there's the book of mormon musical and then there's you know, the list just goes on and on and on. There's big love, right? Yeah. They just, the media just loves to make these shows that are like Mormons are weird and maybe you should be a bit afraid of them. Well, because we're still okay to make fun of because we don't have any cultural cachet. I'm, I'm, I'm pat, like for a while, I was just kind of like, whatever, you know, no, no publicity is bad publicity. It's fine. Yeah. Let them say what they want, but it's just, it just keeps happening. 
Well, I'm not sure it's true. I had a, I had a colleague, um, fellow high school teacher, yeah, who used to teach under the banner of heaven, the book, yeah, um, to students in San Francisco at the high school where he worked, and uh, he taught it for years, loved it, um, and he happened to mention the book to me in passing once, and I like, I don't know, I'm in, accidentally groaned or rolled my eyes or something, <laughs> and he said what, and I was like, oh, well, it's just, it's just when that book came out, like for years everyone conflated Mormons with murderers. And and um, and this is the first time it had come up in conversation that was Latter-day Saint. He hadn't known that. And he was shocked because he had no idea that Latter-day Saints were real. Like they were theoretical. <laughs> I mean, he wouldn't have said that. But like, essentially, that's what happened is like we went from a construct to like someone he knows and someone who had been working with him for probably about 18 months at that point. And like uh, we were friendly and I would still consider his friends. So we haven't spoken since he moved to a different job. But um, he had no idea it's met a Latter-day Saint, but he had. There's tens of thousands of Latter-day Saints in the Bay Area. He had taught that book to Mormon kids almost definitely. Probably not very many, handful, but more than zero. And can you imagine being a Latter-day Saint kid in that class? Like, um, it's rough. There's a, it, I teach Frankenstein, and there's um, there's one chapter where some characters who otherwise were supposed to like um, display some really gross Islamophobia. and uh, I had a, a Muslim student who reacted really strongly to that last semester, and rightly so. Um, and I was kind of shocked that no one had ever like called me on it before. Like I'd used it sort of as an example of how even good people aren't perfect and that sort of thing, but I hadn't really worried about it too much. But she was really concerned that uh, that sort of casual Islamophobia that those characters engage in had a big influence on her fellow classmates, and she wanted to really call it out, which I was glad she did. Uh, and it's and I will never teach that chapter the same way again, but it's really easy to other other people. You know, this is the same point that the board game reviewer mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. Which is when you play a board game, which makes implicit colonialism, he questions what effect that has on your brain. Sure. Right? Now I am... A per now I am a person that you know I'm speaking hypothetically here. Now I'm I'm a person that loves to be exploitative. Well, I want you know. In fact, there's yeah. a there's a phrase. It's called four four X games. Have you heard of four X games? No. Four um, X games are 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 has a specific meaning. Okay, it's explore, expand, exploit, and exterminate. <laughs> All right. It's a subgenre. I'm just reading here from Wikipedia, a subgenre of strategy computer board games and include turn-based and real-time strategy games like, Star yeah. like Starcraft, right? Mm -hmm. Where you look, you move through a map, you expand a base, you find resources, which you extract from the ground and you exterminate everybody else. Right. Yeah. And it is the most, and, and it's, and Starcraft is super fun. Yeah. Right. It is so much fun. And it, to win a multiplayer game where you built up a better economy than your opponent did and you destroyed all their stuff, right? Yeah. It's awesome. But for the winner. For the winner. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what is I mean, so that's the kind of thing that you play all the time, you know. And the and the and the the point isn't to not play board games and to not play video games, but it's to think about what you're doing, right? And to have conversations every now and then that make you think, well, huh, 
you know, 4X really sucks as an acronym. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we want, we all want to believe that media doesn't affect us, but we all believe that it does. And we can all name experiences with a movie or a book or a game that like changed us in some yeah. way. Um, Heart of Darkness is a famously anti-colonialist novella, but Chinua Achebe, um, who is African, wrote a vicious takedown of that book because although it may be and say, showing that colonialism is bad, it's it's largely about how it's bad for colonialists, and it sort of overlooks how it how what happened to Africa. Well, all the Belgians were there, and um, and so he believed that there was a lot of really negative things that came out of this book that was supposed to be, you know, anti-colonialist, but you know, every detail matters. Okay, so I mean, this does tie into our other dis discussion about Judaism, right? Yes. Yeah. No, this is still relevant. This is still relevant. Um, we're we're not going to do a formal review of these other television shows just because we find them so irritating. Yeah, I don't even want to be part of the conversation. Right. I'm happy to let it go by without me. <laughs> but, um, oh, and I should say, if somebody wants to talk to us about them, please feel free to reach out. I mean, it's not as if we won't talk about them. It's just Join that... our Discord. We can make a whole channel for it. Yeah, join our Discord. Exactly. <laughs> and every once in a while, I'll take a deep breath and look at it. <laughs> but um, this kind of ties back into the, to the perspective of fan fiction, right? Oh. And Mormonism's approach to interacting with Judaism. Again, I'm going to speak now from the perspective of someone who doesn't believe in the Mormon church, right? Okay. Who doesn't believe in our teachings, right? Okay. Doesn't believe that the priesthood was restored to Joseph Smith by, you know, um, actual resurrected beings from the Old Testament, like characters that you would re reference in there, right? Okay. Um, or like we have the Aaronic and the Melchizedek priesthood, right? I mean, these are these are ideas that are really biblical. Um, so speaking from from not that perspective, yes. What does cultural appropriation mean? Um, let me uh, give you some theoreticals. By the way, um, I'm going to step back from this later on. I don't believe our relationship to Judaism is cultural appropriation. I don't think so either. I think that's a term that's been overapplied and in I, too many situations. And I think it is a bit of a triggering term, just like I think the word triggering is a bit of a triggering term. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I the banjo is an interesting example. Go on. Um, so the banjo as you may think of it today, is usually argued that it was invented by um, uh, people brought over from Africa who were slaves in the South and they they created the banjo. And then it was it was borrowed by white Appalachians and, and traveled. But that, that's sort of the idea, right? Um, but if you follow the banjo backwards through time, um, it did come from Africa, but it also came from the Celts. And, and they probably both got it from the same source. And the thing is about human history, and this comes back to the idea that we're all related to each other, is that if you go back very many generations, what does it even mean um, to culturally appropriate something? Like we're all the same people. We've all interacted and we've all borrowed from each other so many times. I had a student who gave a presentation on um, Chicano culture uh, a couple last two years ago, I guess now. And um, 
as part of her presentation at the end, she gave a really like emotional plea to people not to wear bandanas because it's appropriation of her culture. Um, and by bandanas, I mean the ones with like, you know, Paisley, um, which is fascinating to me for a number of reasons. Like one, from like when I was a teenager in early 20s, it seemed more associated with, um, I don't know, Tupac than Chicanos. Um, but here's a fun fact. Did you know George Washington wore one of those during the Revolutionary War? Mm-hmm. That that particular article of clothing has been around a long time. And the pattern, Paisley, that's a Persian word. The town is, oh, it's in Ireland, right? Paisley, Ireland. Uh, the town named after the, is named after the pattern, not the pattern named after the town, as I'd always assumed. The pattern goes back to ancient Persia. Um, this is an article of clothing that's been part of a lot of cultures over a long period of time. And so even if I am putting on a bandana as a way to like feel like I'm from East LA and I'm appropriating that culture, like what does that mean? Like that bandana is a lot older than the city of Los Angeles. And so I think I think it's a really, I think it's an important question to consider because I do believe that untoward appropriation occurs. I, I'm not dismissing that as a real thing, but I also agree that I think the term is is an easy way to attack something without appropriate accuracy. Yeah. Well, I actually have a definition. Okay. Let's hear it. This is according to Britannica.com. Once the greatest encyclopedia there was. <laughs> now we have Wikipedia, but go ahead. First of all, they say, um, what is it? It's not a concept designed to trick you. It took off in the 1980s, right? Yeah. It was used in academic spaces to discuss issues such as colonialism and the relationships between majority and minority uses. Uh, I mean, majority and minority groups. Cultural appropriation takes place when members of a majority group adopt cultural elements of a, of a minority group in an exploitative, disrespectful, or stereotypical way. To fully understand its consequences, though, you make, need to make sure you have a working cult knowledge of what culture is. I think that goes by goes back to you point to your point but at the end of the article what they do is they give a bunch of examples right yeah but i'm going to use the one with um, madonna because i think it's great okay okay here's an example a member of a majority group profiting financially or socially from the culture of a minority group is cultural appropriation in 1990 madonna released the music video for her song vogue which featured a dance right it sounds like it's going to be about every TikTok story. But go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, and if you go to our Twitter feed, you will not find either of us voguing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It featured a dance developed in the gay drag ball subculture. Though Madonna included drag performers in the video, ostensibly respecting the dance's origin, origins, she was the one who profited when Vogue went double platinum in the United States. Because Madonna gained financial and cultural capital from voguing in a way that its creators did not, her use of the dance was cultural appropriation. And to me, that makes a lot of sense. Yes, and I think that gets to like the problem with cultural appropriation. I, I mean, I hate to be Marxist, but I, I think the economic issue is maybe the most important one when it comes to cultural appropriation. Uh-huh. I don't often say the phrase, I hate to be Marxist. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting, and I'm not even sure how to respond. Okay, so but go ahead, just restate it. Um, I think that if you are 
appropriating someone's culture for economic gain, that is problematic. That is bad. Um, Why? I think, well, let me rephrase that. I think it's bad if it's, what am I trying to say? Um, well, I really think this is economic. Like if you are, if you are um, taking someone's culture that is not your own and using it to make money that therefore does not go to those people whose culture you have appropriated, um, I think that redirection of finances is the most serious issue with cultural appropriation. I, I think it's compelling. Um, I think that it takes away from the culture that is being appropriated from. Yeah. Right. I don't know how, this is one of those things that I don't really know how to speak to very well myself. Well, and I don't think I'm doing a good job either because I still stand by my, my previous statement that culture should constantly be exchanged between groups. And that is natural and normal in the way humans are, and it's never going to end. And so, yeah, it's not great when um, Madonna or um, whoever is taking a culture and profiting from it. And that that's problematic. But on the other hand, is it a bad thing that uh, drag culture in this case reached a larger audience? Um, well, <laughs> according to a lot of uh, what's on conservative think sites right now, yes, it's, <laughs> it's a terrible thing. But, but in generally speaking, like, isn't it good if a culture's the value of a culture is spread more broadly. And I think the answer is yes. And there has to be ways to do that besides making money off them as opposed to providing opportunities for them to make money. Um, two, two famous examples of cultural appropriation are Elvis and Eminem, but I think that they are, and they did make a lot of money by uh, performing music that was basically black music that they that they borrowed, but both of them also were deeply involved in black communities. And uh, always pointed the finger back towards the people who inspired them and tried to direct their fans towards these other people. And so is it bad that Elvis and Eminem made money doing that kind of music? Is it bad that they, uh, I mean, it's not bad that they pointed people towards, I don't know, like Fats Waller, right? That's that's a perfectly fine thing for them to have done. But what where's the line between making money off of someone and growing the market. I, I think these are really complicated questions and, and it's cultural appropriation is the sort of thing that gets simplified into you bad and it's way too complicated for that sort of simplicity. It doesn't surprise me to learn this was originally an academic term where it was probably treated with a lot more nuance, sort of like, I don't know, critical race theory or something. It's easy to take things from academia and strip them of the 40 pages of hard reading you need to do before you understand the term yeah. and turn it into a tweet. And uh, we do that a lot. And not me and you personally, Aaron, we're better than that. No, but, we try. But Americans, <laughs> uh, culture, modern world, I don't know. Um, this is fantastic. This is, well, I don't know if it's fantastic. I'm enjoying it. We're trying. Yes. It's complicated. And I think it's really interesting. I want to turn now, if it's permissible, to something that might make it more clear as to what I mean by this relationship we have with um, Judaism. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what we're going to look at is an article on Mosaic Magazine. Now, Mosaic Man Magazine is an online journal for that's for advancing Jewish thought, right? But the article itself was written by Matthew Bowman, um, who friend is of the show, a friend of the show. He doesn't know it, but uh... he, 
just like Dr. Park is. Yeah. I don't know if he knows. Matthew either. Bowman is to Judaism as we are to Mormons. Yeah. By the way, you really got to click on this link in the show notes because the photograph of what they call a Latter-day Saint compound in Texas. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know. I assume that's a church, but it's amazing. I assume that was Palestine and, and that that was a building in, you know, Palestine or Israel or something like it's it's an amazing photo. You have to click on it just for the photo, if nothing else. <laughs> to read it, though, you do have to register. You get a free trial. Um, so I want to. Re- so the name of the article is the complicated relationship between Mormons and Jews, right? Uh, and the subtext here is Latter Day Saints patterned themselves after biblical Israel and used its traumas to explain their own. And I'm just going to read a bit. Yes, from the article. and I. I before you read from the article, I just want to point out that we are not alone in doing this. Um, we believe, like, we feel so deeply this connection in part because we had a promised land, right? And, and we had an exodus. And, and, like, we have our pioneer story follows the Old Testament in a very real way. And we're not the only people to do this. Like, um, there's a reason why um, spirituals rely so heavily on the Old Testament, right? Like, African Americans, the enslaved peoples saw themselves in the story, right? the Israelites were enslaved for 400 years, and then they found their way to freedom. And so we're not the only cultural group in the United States who uh, sees ourselves in the Jews, though we do it in a theological way also that is perhaps unique. Mormonism was born in the United States, and it was brought to the world by Joseph Smith. In one sense, he was but one of many Christian restorationists in 19th century America. But his theological vision was unique, where many other Christian reformers sought to return to what they imagined to be the simplicity of the New Testament religion, stripped of what they regarded as Baroque accretions of Roman Catholicism and gloomy theology of the Reformation. It's just, I mean, well done. That's just fantastic. So many syllables. (laughs) Um, Joseph Smith's church sought not to purify, but to complicate Christianity. Other restorationists went universal and appealed to the saving power of faith alone. Smith, by contrast, drew on the Hebrew Bible to fashion a doctrine of salvation rooted in the priesthood and the particularistic sacrament that would earn the scorn of the American Protestant establishment. Looking to Hebrew scripture, Joseph Smith built temples, designed ritual clothing, and instituted washings and anointings. He ordained priests and high priests to preside over those temple rites and Christian sacraments, and he traced their priestly lineage back to Aaron and Melchizedek. He he dictated new scripture in which biblical figures like Moses and Enoch testify of the mission of Jesus Christ. He mandated sacred undergarments and instituted polygamy, citing the precedent of Moses, Abraham, and Jacob. He designated his father, this would be Joseph Smith Sr., as a patriarch to this church and charged him to deliver blessings like those of Isaac to Jacob and Esau and Jacob to Ephraim and Manasseh? Uh, it's, it's Manasseh, it's just a different spelling. Hmm. Manasseh in Egypt. And in those blessings, Joseph Smith Sr. and all the participants who have followed him in the church name the recipient, a member of the, followed him in the church name, the recipient, a member of one of the tribes of Israel. Yes. Okay. And there's one other quote that I wanted to read. So that's just kind of showing you what Joseph Smith did, how he patterned our church. Again, we would say that he didn't pattern our church after the Old Testament, (laughs) right? We would say that God restored his church as he had always had it. Yes. Right. But someone who didn't believe would say that Joseph Smith patterned it like this. Well, so it's provable, right? 
That's right. <laughs> so later on in the article, so, okay, so that's the general idea there. But later on in the article, it talks about, for example, they were about how our relationships with Jews grew during the 1900s, specifically with the formation of the nation of Israel, right? Yeah. Right? They want, we wanted to have a, a, a center there, a complex uh, to house students from the church's Brigham Young University, right? And here it says, some Israelis were in favor, viewing the venture as akin to other evangelical institutions, but many more were opposed to the physical presence of the LDS church in Israel. For them, Mormon, M Mormon use of the language, concepts, and theology of the Hebrew Bible was exploited, and the church's desire to build on the Mount of Olives seemed like Christian colonial colonization of Israel, right? So, this is what I mean. Yeah. Is, is it, is there colonialism here in our, I'm going to be using inflammatory language, which I do not believe. Okay. So okay. I apologize here for those that are listening and who are LDS, right? Is our church colonial, colonialist, right? And appropriating this culture of Judaism. I don't believe it is. No, but I do believe you could find individuals whose beliefs would be impossible to separate from a colonialist mindset. Okay. But officially, and as I feel about it, I think the answer has to be no. Yeah. And the only, the only justification I have for that answer is my absolute adoration of the Judaic <laughs> culture. <laughs> I love it so much. I think yeah. it's so interesting. Right. And it's so much of it is mirrored in my own belief set. And also the definitions I used earlier used the word majority and minority. And I wouldn't apply those to either our religion yeah. <laughs> in either way. But that seems like more of a technical kind of like. Yeah, that's probably a question for another day. Maybe not so relevant. <laughs> um, interruption. Yeah. Well, I don't I didn't have anywhere to go now because I just don't know the answer to the question. Oh, I, I think the answer is no. Oh, you're done. But I have. That's this is the kind of stuff I wanted to say. Oh, okay. Well, uh, is my turn? My turn to bring stuff up then? Yeah. Unless um, you have any kind of response to the stuff I was just saying. No, I mean, I feel like I've said what I want to say in response to that. I think that some examples will be helpful. Okay. Um, the way certain Jewish works of art read really powerfully as exemplars to Latter Day Saint artists. Uh, for instance, the number of Latter-day Saints uh, in the last 50 years who have looked to Fiddler on the Roof as the great example. Dude, I was in that show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that show. Yeah. Like a lot of Mormons see that and say, this is this is the kind of art we need to make. Um, the number of Mormon novelists who read Chaim Potok's uh, My Name is Asher Lev and saw themselves in that book and for whom that book is is foundational in their understanding of what it means to be a religious artist is, is legion. Um, it seems like every time somebody bumps into that book, every time a Mormon bumps into that book, they become a novelist mm -hmm. or, or an artist. Like the, it just, uh, they, the Jewish, um, at least Jewish Americans, like the issues that they, they deal with I think we see echoes of in our own lives. Um, the Jewish experience is a very uh, immigrant-based experience. And I think Latter-day Saints feel like we are an immigrant society, um, in part because a lot of us are, but also in part because 
um, we were sort of pushed out of the country in a big way. And, and while it's absurd to compare the sufferings that our people went through to what the Jews have been through over a much longer period of time, um, those echoes are still meaningful to us. And it's something we look up to and something we admire. I mean, I mean, it's just re- worth restating, right? I mean, the extermination order that we yeah. had. I mean, I mean again, it, I, I, I say let's not minimize things, the horror of what we went through yeah, just because we, it's not as bad as what somebody else went through. I mean, what they it is not comparable. Let's just say that up front, right? But it ain't nothing to have a literal to have an exodus where we fled from one place to another place and then from that place to another place because the first and second places were both burned. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, there's there's a book by um, Amos Oz and his daughter, Fania Oz Salzberger, um, called Jews and Words, which I read nine years ago. And it's a terrific book. And if we had read it more recently, I might well propose we do a whole episode on it. But I want to share um, a couple things on it, um, at least this one. Uh, but this is from Jews and Words by Amos and Fania. Uh, a book from 2012. So uh, they say this, we know you've heard this one before, but please bear with us. So a Jewish grandmother walks on a beach with her beloved grandson when a big wave suddenly sweeps the boy underwater. Dear God almighty, says grandma, how can you do this to me? I suffered all my life and never lost faith. Shame on you. Not a minute passed by and another big wave brings the child back to her arms, safe and sound. Dear God almighty, she says, that's very kind of you, I'm sure, but where's his hat? that's great so apparently this is a very classic (laughs) joke um but they they propose that there's a bold theology inside this this um joke and i think it's a very jewish idea of god and one that a lot of latter-day saints aspire to so i'm going to unpack it using their their thinking so unlike believers in most religions they write our grandma does not conflate faith with awe she treats the Lord of hosts with a healthy pinch of spot. Scrupulous and stringy, excuse me, scrupulous and stingy, impertinent and impolite. She is nevertheless magnificent in her unsentimental devotion. But devotion to whom exactly? To her grandson or to God? Careful. You don't want to test these two grand maternal devotions against each other. God himself doesn't really want to know. And since we are personally acquainted with grandma, we can tell you that after the joke officially ended, it is very likely that he returned the hat. So um, anyway, they go on to say that there's there's a Jewish theology of chutzpah. And so at the intersection of faith and argumentativeness and making fun of yourself, um, it, the Jews have an irreverent reverence, which I think is beautiful and marvelous. And um, and this grandma is similar, they point out, to Abraham and Job haggling with God. And so I think there's a lot we can learn from here. Um because there is a lot that we have in common with the Jews. You know, we're a religion that behaves like an ethnicity. We like to remember our persecution. We uh, at least claim to have a focus on learning in scripture, though the Jews are like whipping our butts in that one too. Um, but I think that even more deeply, we have, we believe in a personal relationship with God. And while uh, fear God, sure. And God is, is great and perfect and all that. Yes. But also we believe in a prophet who would converse with God. Um, there's the story of uh, Spencer W. Kimball, and I can't source this. If anybody can source this for me, please help me do so. And his secretary heard him laughing and and uh, secretary walked in and said, uh, what was that? And he's like, oh, nothing. I was just sharing a joke with the Lord. And 
I feel like as Mormons, we're losing this uh, connection of chutzpah and reverence. Um, and we believe in emulating God. And we believe that that's God, how God wants to be worshipped is by us becoming more like him. And so in other words, finding a way to talk back to God and like engage with God and um, prayer and personal revelation, as opposed to just being good little boys and girls and doing what we're told, that may be the highest form of reverence. And I think that that is something that as a thinker and as a person of faith and as an artist, that's a concept I really admire in the Jews that you can you can um, be a little bit of a smart aleck with God. And that is the kind of relationship you're allowed to have with God. And I think that that is something we as Latter-day Saints um, have in our history. And it's something we're at risk of losing. And it's something I really want to hold on to. And so I don't, I think it's too soon to give up emulating the Jews. I think we have to keep emulating them. <laughs> That's great. Um, listen, I feel like um, we're wrapping up. I really appreciated those comments that you just had. I, I I love it. I I agree. Um, it really is um, fandom on my on my part <laughs> when I when I get to talk with Jewish people about their beliefs and their practices. I just I just really really enjoy it. I would I'd love to actually go. I'd love to actually go to Israel sometime someday, right? And actually see the sites, and I'd love to learn more. And, you know, instead I'm going to play magic and that's probably fine. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a deeply respectful fandom. It's not like a flippant kind of fandom. Like, like I, I worry that using the term fan may make people think that we treat it as no more important than a Marvel movie. But um, I think we mean it more in the sense that this is a piece of culture that's deep in our souls. And even though it's not ours, and even though we can only view it from the outside, it matters a lot to us and we will probably always be more ignorant than we should be. And we will probably stumble and fall. Uh, we didn't even talk about probably what's the biggest issue between us at the moment, but um, maybe another episode someday. <laughs> but I mean, if you're curious what we're hinting at, go read the Wikipedia article. They'll tell you. Yeah, it, it'll come up. Um, <laughs> I actually had, I had some Shakespeare to bring in on that, but some other time. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it comes from a place of respect and love and and hopefully, hopefully not um, fetishizing a culture, because that is really I hope that we are as a culture, we Latter-day Saints as a culture are doing um, having this fandom in a way that is based on on love and respect and understanding and not on um, amusement and charm and thinking that we know everything. I hope not. Face and Hat is a proud member of the dialogue is a proud member of the dialogue uh, of the dialogue podcasting network. Who disavows all responsibility for anything we ever say? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, our music is by Daniel Foster Smith. You can find me at Aaron Brewster on Twitter, and I am at T H M A Z I N G. Yeah, Eric tweets way more than I do, which is essentially never. <laughs> <laughs> and you can follow the show at Face and Hat. And uh, and yeah. go to the Discord. Aaron will respond to you there. Yeah, please do. We've had more people join, and we've had some conversations there, and they've been and they've been lovely. All right, bye, Eric. Bye. bye.